Hello and welcome to Voices in Innovation from GigaOM. I am your host, Johnny Baldisberger. This week we have a special episode sponsored by Kamunda. Our analyst, David Linthicum, will be interviewing their CEO and co-founder, Jacob Friend. So without further ado, uh, let's jump right into the interview and I hope you enjoy. This week, my special guest is Jacob Friend, and he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Kamundra, right? Did I pronounce that right? Yes, exactly. Kamundra is correct. That's, David. that's actually a cool name. I like it because it's, uh, it's, uh, you pronounce it the way it's spelled. And so he is basically the CEO and co-founder of uh, Kamunda and responsible for the company's vision and strategies, also driven driving force behind the company's global growth and takes responsibility for the company culture as well as holding an MS degree in computer science. He's co-authored a book, Real Life BPMN, and is a sought-after speaker at technology and industry events. And the company is kind of interesting. Founded in 2008 um, by Bern Ricker, Ricker, excuse me, and uh, Jacob, and uh, as a BPN consulting company. After a few years, many customers were asking for standards-based, open-source, and developer-friendly software, and they decided to build it. And they launched uh, Kamunda BPN in 2013. And after 10 years. They are now innovating workflow process automation for the digital age and saving companies millions of dollars and making them more competitive. Well, wow, that's a great description. So give me the inside scoop. What, what caused you? It sounds like you were a service firm that became a product firm. And I see that happening a lot. But what was kind of the eureka moment uh, during that process that decided you to get into the uh, business process management business? Yeah, thanks, David. So happy to chat about that because when Bant and I started about 12 years ago, we didn't want to build a tech startup. We really just wanted to do our own thing as consultants, basically, but we were already quite passionate about, about business process management, so helping organizations to, to build better processes, basically, and did that as consultants, um, as you said, in the first roughly five years. And during that time, we just saw a lot of technology in the market and most of that was, um, was cumbersome, was difficult to adopt by developers in particular. So they had that idea um, back in the 2000s called model-driven development. So the idea that you would take some big vendor's product and you could actually point and click and kind of cobble together your process automation solution without needing any software developers. That was a promise made by those bigger vendors back in the days. Us as consultants, we saw that failing um, in those in those actual projects and we thought that there should be a better way. And since we also had an affinity towards open source, we started Camunda BPM as an alternative to that. So we said, okay, let's build something that is open, flexible, love to use, just embrace, um, and also are happy to be a part of as an open source project. Let's let's launch that and see how it goes. And it went very, very well. So that's why we were able to basically build a product business without any like outside funding, outside venture capital, for example. So it really, it's, it's like the old school way in a way. We saw that as a service business, saw an opportunity for a product and made that happen. So you guys were self-funded. You didn't go out and get any outside capital? Yes, exactly. So we just, I think it's about like two years ago that we um, did take Highland Europe as an as an investor on the cap table. But until then, when we were already at around 100 people, we didn't have any outside funding at all. So we were actually profitable and we still are, by the way. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for that. I, I did the whole venture capital stuff when I was a CEO a while ago and then did a uh, self-funded startup. 
And it was really nice where I wasn't worrying about going off and raising rounds and rounds of cash to try to keep the company going. Ultimately, I was able to make a lot of decisions myself. And I think that helped it be more innovative and creative in the space. And so good for you guys. So looking at kind of current events, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So ultimately, COVID-19 is impacting everybody. And you guys had to have some kind of a plan and some kind of an approach to responding to it. So how has uh, Kamunda and process automation activities, you know, changed uh, within your approach to things? And what are you doing to actually change your approach, your software, how you sell it out into the marketplace? And what kind of problems are you solving? Yes, yeah, so I would like to look at that from, from two angles. One, our own organization. So how do we cope with that in a way? And and then second, what does it mean for our industry? So the process automation as, as a business, so to speak. And regarding ourselves, we are now at around 250 people and we were already transitioning into a, what I call a distributed organization. So when we I mean, we're German originally, as you as you um, might have might have noticed. So we started in Berlin, Germany, but um, about five years ago, we started already to expand, for example, into the U.S. So we we did set up offices there, etc. So we turned into a distributed organization, and I wanted us to embrace that um, fully, um, also before COVID hit, actually. So we already um, adapted tools like Slack and Zoom, and we started asynchronous collaboration based on Google Docs and so on and so forth. So when when COVID hit and we had to send everyone home to work from home. Um, we were actually able to transition to that total remote work um, quite smoothly. And in that sense, um, we're coping pretty well um, with the situation besides obviously the like, psychological stress that people have to endure. We all have to, to go through that actually in the same boat. And um, when it comes to, to the business, to the industry, um, I always like to say that COVID is kind of a huge catalyst um, for this digital transformation, not just of of companies and organizations, but the entire society. Everyone's going online, basically, and selling their or ordering their, their goods online, um, the groceries or, or whatnot. So it's a, it's a huge accelerator also for process automation adoption in the industry. So in that sense, we have actually seen um, our product being adopted more even than than before COVID hit, because now suddenly organizations, one example, maybe the European Commission, the de facto government of the European Union, um, they reached out a few months ago and let us know that um, they've accelerated their, their Camunda projects, because now that everyone has to work remotely, they need to get their ducks in a row. They need to set up certain processes that used to work in a way of people tapping each other on the shoulder in the office. Um, that doesn't work anymore. So they now need to set up structures that make sure everyone knows what they need to work on um, every day and process automation is a means to that. So in that sense, they actually accelerated um, their, their adoption of Camunda because of COVID. Yeah, I see that happening a ton. Everybody's uh, reevaluating their technical approaches and, and becoming more innovative. You know, kind of the mother of invention is a need and we have the need now to, in essence, create a very flexible and cogent workforce and uh, the ability to kind of leverage technologies for force multiplier becomes a priority. So RPA adoption in general has, you know, basically accelerated automation of legacy systems, mainframe systems, UI driven workflow applications. And, you know, while this seems to work in the short term, scaling RPA deployments also come with this thing called technical debt. So is there a way ultimately for RPA automation teams to have their RPA cake and need it too? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. And of course, it's important to clarify perhaps what technical debt really means in this context. So, so for those of you that are familiar with RPA, robotic process automation, you you certainly know that it's all about automating tasks in, in legacy applications. So all all stuff that is still around and doesn't have an API. So you can apply RPA and and automate UI based basically, and that's a great quick fix. So that works fine for those first few dozen bots, but then. At a certain scale, you begin to experience certain issues because it's quite hard to maintain and monitor that complex bot landscape eventually, so especially along your business processes. So, for example, which processes might be affected when a certain bot is down suddenly? And that's that's not just a theoretical question. That actually happens all the time because this UI-based automation is a lot more brittle than API-based automation. So, in that sense, you must get rid of the, of the actual root cause, the legacy system, which Exactly, it's why they're called legacy. We have to replace them with something modern services that are exposed via APIs, for example. And that's then that that necessity. That's the technical debt um, that that you also mentioned, David. So um, that's a debt that that comes with RPA pretty much by definition. At this, although it's a great quick fix. So how can you actually? if you will bridge that that gap in the sense of, okay, we might adopt RPA very quickly, have some quick wins at the same time, building technical debt that we need to carry off eventually. Well, until you are at that point where you can actually modernize your system landscape, you can add a process orchestration layer, like for example, Camunda that orchestrates your RPA bots together with APIs and even human workers as part of one business process. And then you get this real-time transparency, the certainty about what's actually happening and also more error handling measures. So you can make sure that a broken bot won't actually break your entire process. So what other things do we have to look out for? So in other words, if we're, if we're going to allow this stuff to scale and we're going to allow adoption to, in essence, move forward, you know, where are we going to be in two years, four years, five years down the line in terms of our, our RPA adoption? And what kind of issues are, do you think we're going to have to overcome? I'm, I'm assuming that RPA is going to, to be around for a long time because legacy systems are going to be around for a long time. So um, it all comes to the old saying about the hammer and the nail, right? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to apply RPA just to, to any process automation problem, but those specific situations where you have a user interface, um, that's the only way to access your application. There's no API and it's going to stay for that or like that for a while. And um, as long as that is the case, RPA is a great tool to apply. And two to three years from now, I'm assuming that um, a lot of organizations will have moved on from RPA um, by gradually modernizing their legacy systems. And a great example is Deutsche Telekom. So they have one of the biggest RPA deployments in Europe. Um, with more than 3,000 bots, arguably. Um, and and they're, they're still saying, okay, this is a, a debt now that we also need to overcome. So they are gradually replacing RPA bots with API services, um, like bot by bot, so to speak. And they have this clear roadmap in front of them. I, I think that's a very important strategy to have in place. So in that sense, uh, my assumption is that a lot more organizations will have that kind of uh, modernization journey in place and actually happening. So um, we will see a lot of RPA deployment still. We will see um, automation deployments that used to be RPA-based are now API-based. Um, and we will also see process automation deployments that um, were API-based right from the start and never went kind of the detour via RPA. So one, one of the questions I have back in 1997, I wrote a book called EAI, Enterprise Application Integration, where I identified different layers of integration, including data integration, user interface level integration, things like that, but also 
the ability to have process automation and integration. So the ability to kind of layer this meta process on top of integration layers and APIs, and we're able to kind of do a primitive orchestration between many target systems moving forward. And here we are, you know, in 2020, moving to 2021, and ultimately there seems to be some convergence and overlap of RPA, process automation, the integration platform, service vendors, capabilities are emerging in different ways. And ultimately automation teams are looking to, in essence, get a handle on this technology, understand what it means and leverage it in terms of solving some problems. So what is the approach to orchestration that people should be leveraging, where should Automation Center of Excellence look for solutions? What's going to be relevant today? Yeah, that's, and the funny that you mentioned that, you mentioned EAI, and um, that was my first job, actually. I was an EAI consultant in the early 2000s. So You're welcome. <laughs> sometimes it repeats itself in a way, doesn't it? So um, you can, of course, argue, okay, hey, this, this is new, is it, in a way, um, orchestration, for example, and the orchestration layer. Um, I think it's a... It's a bit like agile development. You know, we're iterating over the same problems again and again, and we're applying solutions and developing those solutions further um, again and again. And and process orchestration is just one of them. So um, not getting too granular here in technical details, but just as an example, one of the big challenges in process orchestration that is yet to be solved, or let's say that is being solved right now, is um, being reliable at scale. So when you think of... Um, all those businesses that have moved online now and they suddenly have certain peaks in incoming transactions, like incoming orders right before the holidays, for example. Um, so, so then you suddenly have a massive scale um, on those systems. They are distributed. So how do you make sure that um, they actually process each of those orders reliably, even if a system um, like one of those participants um, in that orchestration plays down suddenly. So you need fault tolerance, for example, and horizontal scalability. So in that sense, um, conceptually, it's not new at all. Um, in terms of actual implementation, there's a lot of, lot of stuff actually going on that is worth looking at um, in terms of, of automation. Um, to answer your question, though, um, it's important that that any organization really owns their automation toolbox. So it's a typical flaw that you read some shiny marketing material from some vendor and they promise you the one-stop shop and just you know shop with us and you get everything you need, um, process orchestration and RPA and AI machine learning and, and whatnot, you name it. It's like all coming from one vendor, nicely integrated. Uh, you don't need to understand really what, what that is, but uh, just give us your money and then we make it happen for you. Um, that is the trap that that customers um, tend to fall in time and again, and it doesn't really work. So any company nowadays is becoming a software company and they need to they need to own their stuff. So it means that they shouldn't end up with some monolithic proprietary one-stop shop automation suite. They should actually go for an, for an open, flexible architecture for a best-of-breed approach so that they actually get the, the, the best option for each of those domains in the automation scope and, and domain and put that together um, and, and really own it, being able to maintain it and develop it further themselves, which is one element also why open source plays a big role here. So ultimately, we need to figure out the use cases for this. So, you know, and I get this a lot, you know, why should enterprises care about process automation ultimately in the first place? You know, it's a technical topic. Their eyes kind of glaze over when I start to talk about it as related to other technologies. And they're like, oh, here we go again with something else that's new and shiny that I need to chase. And so why should my business decision makers be aware of this technology and how should they employ it? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. And also, being being a tech person myself to some degree, I also know that challenge. So um, technical people are often very quickly aware of the benefits of um, of that technology, and then you have the CEO um, or other C-suite members, and they they struggle to really get it. Um, what what I find often helps is to make them aware of Amazon, and and everyone you know has this this fear death by Amazon, like Amazon getting into your industry, disrupting your industry, thanks to superior customer experience and operational efficiency, and. And that's actually exactly what process automation is about. So um, a recent study that we commissioned showed that actually 97% of IT decision makers confirm that process automation is a key enabler for digital transformation. That's what everyone wants, really. Um, and the question is, how do we get there? Process automation is a key thing here. So in that sense, you can really square the circle and get both. This, this superior customer experience, like, drastically reduced cycle times, I get my stuff the next day, for example, and higher operational efficiency, making sure that I can really contain or retain great margins while scaling up my business. That's exactly what process automation makes happen for you. So, so in that sense, if you want to become the Amazon of your industry, you have to look at process automation. So moving forward, you know, I'm looking at process automation. So where is this going to take me three, four, five years down the line and what are some of the business benefits that I'm going to be looking at then versus the ones I'm getting at today? So I, I would argue that at the end of the day, it's all about becoming a truly digital enterprise. So and today I might apply process automation, modern process automation, like real-time processing, instant processing of incoming orders, for example. I might apply that locally. So I might improve my, my order provisioning. I might be, a, for example, a telco shop, and I'm now suddenly able to provide my, my data plans, my new data plans, much quicker and be more competitive in my in my market. So I'd say it's a local adoption still. Um, building on that local adoption experience and then systematically expanding this horizontally throughout my entire organization will eventually turn me into a, what we say, digital enterprise. So in that sense, being digital native, um, having overcome all those those impediments of a more analog or outdated uh, technology stack. Like, for example, um, batch processing. I have to process incoming orders overnight on my mainframe system uh, because of performance issues. So my customer will only get um, their, their stuff the next day and not, for example, right away in, in a real-time um, experience. So going through that journey and becoming eventually that, that enterprise that is able to provide that superior customer experience um, with operational efficiency at scale, being agile and able to quickly adopt to new customer or business requirements in general, that's going to be the outcome for of that journey in the next three to four years. This is one I get a lot. Um, in other words, process automation is not exactly new. We just talked about a book I wrote back in the uh, in the late 90s, and actually it predates that. And ultimately, we have to look at what the automation challenges are today and uh, what criteria you know, should they consider when looking at process automation technology, any technology stacks? In other words, how do I pick the right stuff to solve my particular problems? And it's fairly confusing out there. So what advice would you give them? Yeah, this is where it becomes really real. This is where the, where, how do you say that, the rubber hits the road? So 
um, where, where you need to like get down from that ivory tower and and, and lofty thoughts um, and really look at the technology and really, for example, conduct a proof of concept and, and really set it up and get it in the hands of your developers and hear what they say about it, for example. So in terms of, let's say, high-level things that you need to be aware of, um, I can I can provide a few. So one is that end-to-end -end process automation, it means that you really orchestrate any possible participant of, of such a process. So it can be humans, like people working in the office. It can be IT systems, like let it be legacy systems or modern microservices-based API encapsulated systems. It can be physical devices, like actual robots um, in, in research labs, for example. We also have that. So all of that needs to be orchestrated as part of the end-to-end -end process. And that's why the orchestration technology, that ability to run mission-critical processes reliably at scale, speaking of fault tolerance and high throughput, um, that is, for example, imperative. Another element is about bringing together people. So all those different stakeholders of your process that either um, have a stake in the performance business-wise or are responsible for making it happen as developers, for example, that implement your process. So you really need to tear down those barriers, those walls between business and IT the same table and BPMN as the standard, the ISO standard, in fact, for process modeling um, is a great lingua franca to make that happen, to let them speak a common language. BPMN allows you to express your business process as a flowchart that business people understand and you're looking at the source code like right away. It's not converted into source code. It is the source code that is interpreted by any BPMN compliant process orchestration technology out there. Same holds for DMN, which stands for decision model and notation. So DMN is a standard that is about automating business rules, basically, based on decision tables. So those two standards, they go hand in hand to make that happen. Um, not falling into this citizen developer trap. So citizen developer as a concept is great when you look at relatively simple applications that need to be implemented as part of back office operations, your super macros and Excel or, or whatnot. That's where they're great. But it doesn't really work when you need to automate your core business operations. It's, it's way too complex and mission critical to let citizen developers do that in a complete low-code fashion. So you need actual software developers. Um, as, the, as the former Goldman Sachs CEO said, Goldman Sachs is a technology company. They have more developers than Facebook or LinkedIn. So if you have that and you really embrace that understanding and you need an automation stack that is fully embraced and loved by your developers and not forced down their throat, so to speak. And that's also because if the stack is open, it's not that proprietary black box that developers could integrate with the rest of your technology stack. It's actually open. They can investigate it. They can actually cherry pick the parts they want to use in a headless fashion, for example. Um, so that's also an important criteria here. So I got one last question, but I think it's an important question. It's on the minds of a lot of people listening to this podcast. Well, RPA and other process automation technologies replace human beings in a large part moving forward, or is this basically augmentation of existing kind of intelligence and how we're going to manage human intelligence? Well, it's pretty certainly both, I'd argue. So when I, you know, I mean, seriously, when I think of, of progress in general, anything, industrial revolution or the first, like the wheel or whatever, was always about replacing manual work, manual efforts was something that, that mankind has invented. So obviously that's also the case for anything that goes on in the software world, including RPA, AI, or whatever. It is about um, making stuff happen automatically that we used to make happen manually. Of course, the question that, that you're aiming at is, 
but what does it mean for an individual, for, for, for someone working in a certain business unit? Will they lose their job, for example? And that, again, of course, depends on the situation. To be quite honest, especially with RPA, a lot of case studies around RPA are about saving costs for labor. So claiming that, hey, we've saved so and so many man hours or whatever per year, and that translates into millions and millions of, of saved employment costs. Of course, you wouldn't let those people go right away. Often you couldn't, certainly you shouldn't. So you will put them to other activities or try to make them amplify their efforts. So let them focus on the creative things um, so that they don't need to worry about the repetitive um, and boring and mind-numbing things. So ideally, that is my hope, that's going to be the, the default development. At the same time, quite honestly, us as a society, we need to be aware of the fact that people might lose employment because of automation. And as societies, we need to figure out what that means, how we can support people to, for example, learn new skills to get along. There are lots of discussions around basic income, also in Germany, for example. That's the kind of questions we, we really should um, be aware of and not ignore and, and dodge in whatever way. That's my opinion. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so too. My, my response to that is ultimately we've been changing for the last hundred years and the next hundred years is going to be none different. And technology comes along to augment basically human beings and how we do work and things like that. And it's going to be a continuous improvement moving forward. I think at the end of the day, RPA and other process automation technologies allow human beings to be brilliant because they re remove us from the mundane tasks of operating things and dealing with logical sequences and things like that. So ultimately, I welcome them, and I think the human beings in the process are going to welcome them as well. I think it's going to augment our ability to be more effective at, at what our jobs are. So, Jacob, where can we find out more about Commander on the Web? Uh, Commander.com. <laughs> That's just, just, really, just Google it or, or pull up the website. That's the place to go, really. <laughs> Check out the company. They're doing great stuff. I had some uh, great briefings with them and I'm very impressed with their technology. So anyway, please pick up a copy of my book, Cloud Computing and SOA Convergence, available on Amazon and other places books are sold. Also, make sure to follow me on Twitter at David Linthicum, L-I-N-T-H-I-C-U-M, as well as LinkedIn, where I have several cloud computing courses on LinkedIn Learning. And we'll talk again real soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening. And Thank you once again to Kamunda for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find out more, if you'd like to read our research or check out our blogs, you can do so at gigaohm.com or you can get all of our future forward advice on IT and the tech industry. For GigaOM, I'm Johnny Baldisberger, and this has been Voices in Innovation. Just listen.